1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The
2: Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, we mark the end of our fifth series with a highlights edition, looking back at some of the memorable moments from series five. We'll reflect on the life of Stephen Spurrier with Adam Lechmere talking about the celebrated judgment of Paris and how that came about. Yolumba chief winemaker Louisa Rose waxes lyrical on Viognier. Alistair Cooper MW talks about Chile's recent wine renaissance. Madeline Stenreth, MW shares her knowledge of altitude wines in Argentina. There's an intro to New York's Finger Lakes from Kelby Russell at Red Newt. And we welcome legendary drinks writer Susie Atkins of The Telegraph and Delicious magazine.
3: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
2: You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Back in March, we marked the first anniversary of the death of one of the UK wine trade's leading lights, Stephen Spurrier. He was celebrated for so many things, his dress sense, his love of art, and of course, his passion for wine. Uh, But he's undoubtedly most famous for the judgment of Paris, a tasting challenge between old and new worlds back in 1976, uh, in this case, it was California versus France, uh, to celebrate the bicentennial of American
4: independence. Adam Lechmere of Club Inalogique joined me to share that particular story. What he was trying to do was simply, you know, as a, as a shopkeeper, you know, he thought um, declaration of independence, very, very important um, occasion, you know, and obviously a huge thing in France as well. He thought, why not just, you know, why not put tasty? He thought it was a good idea. Um, and show American wines as well because he'd been to California a lot and he, he'd been pretty impressed with the wines he was tasting from California. And so um, he, he had, you know, he had a, a sort of good idea of which wines he'd show. He invited um, all the great French critics. So who was there then uh, for the judgment of Paris? Who was doing the, the judging Right. Well, the judging panel—it's—it's um, it's really impossible to, to 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 imagine a more august or eminent panel of French um, of, of French wine critics. This was the French wine establishment. Um, you had Raymond Oliver, um, who was owner and chef of the Grand Vivor restaurant, which is one of the the, the temples of Paris cuisine um, in the in the sixties. Claude Dubois Milot, um, who was sales director of the Food and Wine Bible, go Milot. Um, Odette Kahn. Um, who was editor of La Revue de Vins de France, uh, Ober de Vilaine, who was uh, owner, still is owner, of um, the um, great Burgundy estate, um, Domaine de la Romane Conti. Pierre Thary, um owner of Chateau Giscourt in Bordeaux, um, Christian Vannecke, um who um, was chef, uh, owner of the restaurant Tour d'Argent. Uh, so a, a very, very eminent panel.
2: And uh, how many wines you know, were, were they tasting? How long did this um, event that is now so famous, how long did it last? Was it a, you know, just a couple of hours, like a sort of standard tasting that uh, you or I might go to in, in London, Adam?
4: Yeah, no, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it probably lasted about sort of, sort of, two and a half, three hours. There were um, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. There's, there were sort of ten Chardonnays and ten Cabernets they tasted them um, I, I think they tasted the chardonnay first then they tasted the then they tasted the um the red wines the the wines um you know this this is again this this is a a very very well-known story um in the overall results um the the, the château Montalena, 1973 um that came came first after the chardonnay's um stags leap wine cellars 1973 um, came first out of the Cabernet Sauvignons. The the, the 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 second wine, the second Chardonnay, was a was a, a Merceau, Charme, um, nineteen seventy three. The second um, Cabernet was Chateau Mouton, um, nineteen seventy. Um, now you know w- w- one thing that Stephen always admitted was that you know actually um, it it wasn't um, a sort of statistically. Uh, it, it was st- statistically the, the, the wines coming first or second or third didn't mean a thing because all Stephen did was he added up all the critic scores and divided by the number of critics there um, and apparently people who understand statistics say that that is not um, a proper way of uh, working things out so actually you know if you look at it in in pure statistical sense you know the Montelena and the Staggs Deep actually didn't come first Because you have to properly weight these things in some way, I don't know. So yeah, it would have it would have been probably about two or three hours, and then they had lunch. You know, one of the really sort of important things about the tasting was that um, it was it was um, not a particularly it didn't have a particularly pleasant ending for anybody Um, when Stephen unveiled the results. You know, the critics um, obviously were, were absolutely mortified. Um, because it made them look really stupid, um, because, um, you know, they, they had, you know, one of, you know, as all of us in, in, in wine know, that it's always very embarrassing when you hold yourself up as an expert and you can't recognise, you know, you can't tell the difference between a French and an American wine. And, and you know, you had the editor um, of Revue de Van de France, one of the most important wine critics in, in the world, really, thought she was tasting a French wine when she was tasting an American wine. And so she, Odette Kahn, demanded her notes back from Stephen. She, she went, immediately went and, and started, um, you know, trying to um, rubbish the results, saying, that the, saying the results were cooked. And Stephen refused to give her her notes back, said, no, madam, these notes are now mine. And, wow. <laughs> uh, you Wow. Know, um, it made Stephen very, very unpopular in France for a bit. You know, as he said, um, you know, um, various people, various chateau owners wouldn't speak to him. Uh, Aubert de Villain, um, um told him that he'd spat in the soup, and Gosh. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was it was it was it was pretty unpleasant, I think, for him. Um, uh, you know, he, he obviously, you know, he obviously regained um, his his popularity very, very quickly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that the, 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 the French, um, you know, the French establishment was, was, was you know, left very much with with egg on its face, really. Yes.
2: I mean, it, it rather follows, doesn't it? That if he was um, incredibly famous and popular in California as a result of this, um, then uh, it was highly likely that the reverse was going to be true um, within uh, France at, at the time, doesn't it?
4: Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Stephen, Stephen's saying to me, um, this is a piece I wrote some time ago. I said the French wine establishment was outraged. And that's right. Yes. Stephen, Stephen said that um, he found out later um, that um, Lalu Biz Leroy, um, who, you know, one, one of the um, very, very, very eminent um, um, owners of Burgundy. She she was the co-owner of Domaine de la Romani-Conti at the time with Aubert de Villaine." And when he got back to Burgundy, um, he was given a really hard time by her, you know? you know. And people rang him up and abused him on the phone. People rang Stephen up and abused him on the phone. Um, the, um, the, you know, the tasters of Pierre, Pierre Thierry, um, um, the owner of Chateau Giscourt, was asked to resign. He was mayor of Bordeaux, uh, mayor of Margot. Um, and he was asked to resign from that post for what he'd done in Paris. You know, it's, it's quite quite serious stuff, you know. It's, it's not... Um, you know, yeah. No, no, nobody died, as they say, but, uh, you know, reputations were 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 badly damaged.
2: Uh, yes, but but not uh, Stevens, ultimately, because it was such a, uh, exactly. a, a moment yeah. Yeah, in, exactly. in history, a moment in, in time. Yes. And uh, this inspired a movie. Um, and uh, by all accounts, sadly, it, it's not a very good movie, I don't think.
4: Ah, this is Bottle Shock. Yes. Well, no, actually, Bottle Shock was absolutely panned. Um, and um, the sort of received wisdom in the wine world is that it's a dreadful film actually it's far far better than a lot of people think it's actually it's actually pretty amusing it's got Alan Rickman in it who's absolutely wonderful um, as Stephen he's play he, he, he plays this uh, plays him up as this ridiculous kind of effete sort of wine snob you know but I spoke to Bo Barrett the other day um, and I was asking him about Bo Barrett was the, the owner of uh, still is the owner of um, Montelena and he was a young guy then he was in his 20s um, and his dad um, was, was uh, Jim Barrett was that was the formidable owner um, of Montelena. But Bo, um, I was asking him about Bottle Shock. Um, he was saying it's just a bit of fun, you know, He, he because his portrayal was as, was, as, was as a sort of ludicrous kind of surfer dude, you know, which he wasn't at all. He happened to be sort of blonde and tall and handsome. Um, but he was, he, was, he was quite a serious young guy, but he was portrayed in the film as this ludicrous surfer dude. But actually the film's very entertaining, in fact. It's actually a lot better. I mean, you know, the most famous wine film in the world, obviously, is Sideways, which everybody, you know, goes on about how wonderful it is. If you watch that film again, it's dated very, very, very badly. It hasn't aged well at all. I think Bottle Shock is probably a better, will turn out to be a better film than Sideways, funnily enough. Right. Anyway, I digress. Okay.
2: Well, no, I need to watch it. That's, uh, that, that's, uh, I should put that on my. Yeah. Uh, my list. So Stephen came back um, after the judgment. He's um, a very famous man in the wine world now. Um, uh, he came back from Paris uh, to London, uh, but this was without the fortune that he he once enjoyed. He, he uh, reading your obituary. Uh, when uh, Stephen and Bella came back to London, uh, they really kind of had to almost start again.
4: Yeah, I mean, Stephen, yes, he, he liked to say he was broke. I don't think he was broke. I think he still had sort of a little bit sort of sorted away, you know. But they had an absolutely dreadful experience in New York. Um, that um, I, th- I think their experience in New, New York was so bad that um, it, it, he really wouldn't, didn't want to talk about it, actually. Um, but um, because they they had Carve de la Madeleine and then they had the Academy du Vin, which was the, the, the um, educational, um, you know, arm of Carve de la Madeleine. Which was run by Patricia Gallagher, Stephen's friend. Um, that was very successful in Paris. Um, in the way of these things, Stephen thought, if it works in Paris, why why would it work in New York? They opened up a branch in New York that failed, um, failed dismally. Um, and Stephen Stephen said all he'd say was that uh, it, you know it, they had a very 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 bad time in New York, a very bad year. He said neither of them had been back there since Bella. Um, Bella couldn't even Bella never went back to New York hated hated the mention of it and that's then that's when they they, they sold the wine shop and came back to to, to london
2: adam lechmere of club In-A-Logique celebrating the legend that was stephen spurrier much missed Vionier makes some of the world's most expensive wines, albeit in relatively small quantities, from Condria in the northern Rhone. But by contrast, it also makes some of the best value wines you'll find in the aisles of your local supermarket or wine store. The latter category is in very large part due to the success of Yolumba, a family owned winery, the oldest in Australia, where the chief winemaker Louisa Rose has pioneered the variety over the last 30 years. So much so that she's now widely known as the Queen of Vionier. So I asked her what made the grape so very special. Wow,
5: it's such a, it's a wonderful variety. It it it's got uh, it's got beautiful flavors, it's got beautiful textures. It's one of the best varieties I know that goes with food. Um, and and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but any food really is is great with Viognier. So, um you know, I think it's a great part of our lifestyle and, and we can celebrate it. But the real reason, I, I suppose, that we, we established International Viognier Day um, a few years ago was um, because it seemed that other varieties had their own day, and there is an International Chardonnay Day and an International Riesling Day and an International Grenache Day, and, and we thought, well, wait, maybe we should just have an International Viognier Day. It's a variety that's really, really special to us here at Yalumba, and uh, what a great oppo- What a great excuse to, uh, you know, have a few, uh, have a few tastings and um, a few parties.
2: Well, that's certainly a good reason. Do you think these particular uh, days uh, that we talk about, uh, there's a Merlot day, and uh, as you say, all the other ones you listed. What do you think they they actually do to help promote a particular grape variety?
5: I think it's just awareness. Um, you know, we there's so many varieties, and you know, out there, um, and you know, apart from the few mainstream ones, many of them, you know, like like Viognier, just don't really, you know, s- s- get get much of a looking in, in many cases so you know it's nice to have a, have a you know a bit of a headline that you can say right today's about this particular variety and for businesses for, for ourselves of course as the as you know as a winery but many other wineries we hope will get on board as well and um, sometimes there's events that, are, that happen around the world sometimes you know restaurants will put on particular wine and food matches um, so that's, it's a really good opportunity to focus, and 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 you and our customers, hopefully, out there will, will will latch on to some of those ideas, and and it will become front of mind for them rather than just somewhere, you know, in the uh, in the general wine cellar of their mind.
2: You say front of mind. Um, it, it, it's astonishing to think that uh, within my lifetime, uh, Viognier almost disappeared as a variety, didn't it?
5: That's right. And and we th- we think, and it's actually really hard to get some of these sort of, you know, figures, but we think that there were somewhere between 11 and, and 14 hectares of it in existence when it was first planted at Iolumbra in 1980. It had been more widely planted, you know, we believe, you know, earlier in the 1900, um, 1900s in, in France, um, but it really hadn't gone anywhere else. And, and even, um, you know, Chondria itself, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, there's 10 times more vines planted there now um, than there were um, in, in that sort of late 70s, early 80s time. So it was, it was nearly extinct. And, and I think, um, you know, that, that people, wineries like ourselves um, in, the, in the early, in the 80s and then particularly in the early 90s were really looking for a point of difference. They were looking for new varieties. Um, you know, in many cases, in Australia, in fact, even though Chardonnay had been here for a long time, um, you know, most most winemakers didn't hadn't been working with Chardonnay or even making that. So, you know, that was one of the varieties that became very popular. Pinot Grigio a bit later, um, and then you know, for us um, with Viognier.
2: And I was reading uh, Jancis Robinson's. Uh blog um, her website um talking about the the history of uh, of vionier and that's where she uh, alights on it and she t- talks about the fact that in 1985 um, she was able to identify as you said scarcely a, a few hectares around the world of this uh, particular variety yet she went on she says to describe it as a, a major grape variety um even though there were literally tiny quantities of it uh, planted and um it's, uh it, it when you consider that it it did almost become extinct it's extraordinary because critics and um, sort of the public generally just love this variety don't they
5: they do they do once they they discover it um and and it's it is still that sort of discovery process for so many people you know around the world you know with, with viognier um but you know what's not to love about it you know it's it's such a delicious variety um, I, I it is interesting and I love that you know that Jansis um, that you just quoted her because when um, when I started um, at Yolombo in 1992 um, I actually I'd never heard of Viognier. you know I'd studied winemaking and tasted many wines through my studies and I didn't know I'm sure I hadn't I, I hadn't never heard of it if I had it had just gone straight through um, between the years but um, it it also it, it wasn't hard it wasn't easy to find a lot of information about it and in fact Janssens writings were about the only thing I could find. Um, plenty of people had requoted her, uh, but that but that was about the only information that you know we could actually find about about this variety and. You know, it wasn't. Uh, if you can, if you, you may not be able to recall that far back, David. But um, mm. you know, you didn't just pop on a computer and, and Google things in those days. You know, research was actually going through magazines and library filing systems, and you know that sort of thing. So it, it, it grew, um, you know, perhaps slowly for a while, and then you know got more of a critical mass through the through the '90s as as more and more people tasted it and fell in love with it.
2: I was introduced to it uh i think in probably around the turn of the millennium and and i had i had a great enthusiasm for wine by then but i had definitely not heard of it and i remember being introduced to it uh by a friend of mine who brought some bottles back from the south of france and uh called it vonnier and uh, <laughs> re- couldn't pronounce it i don't know if that's something that you still encounter uh to this day with people getting the, the name wrong uh
5: yes um we get a lot of via uh, but, you know, we've often um, thought about it. And, and when we released, you, you mentioned earlier the Y series, which is our, you know, introduction to people with the Onye, When we launched that wine in the late 90s, we were, we were nervous that, that because it was a name that, that seemed to be difficult to pronounce that that people wouldn't buy it um and that just did not prove to be the case it was you know we heard anecdotally these stories of people going into shops and saying i've heard about this new wine you know it starts with v your lumber make it you know where can where can i get it you know they were they they were they got over that um, you know nervousness about the the not being able to pronounce it really quickly um, having said that we did do um, quite a lot of advertising in the um you know in those days um and we even had sort of big billboards up in 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 cities that sort of had it had the sort of the phonetically sort of spelt so you know like v on yay and we have a little which is quite an australian sort of uh, way of sort of remembering it over here but uh and our viognier symposium in 2001 bailey Meyer, who was um another one of early viognier makers in australia he got up and said good on your viognier
2: oh very good yeah no it's um i was and that's uh, the sort of
5: thing people need yeah
2: well it is and it's um i remember seeing on um in new zealand seeing on a blackboard a reference to Grunewaldliner, and it was described as groovy jetliner and i just thought <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic I, I can't look at the name without thinking about that now so it's it's lovely um you when you talk about uh Vionier, and i've um i've sat at the other end of a a, a zoom screen for, for virtual tastings with you which are are always um sort of straight talking and always uh always Fantastic and full of uh, information and and sort of nuggets of detail. And you uh, often reference. I'm taking. I'm I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but you basically reference uh, Viognier as a white wine for red lovers, uh, don't you?
5: Uh, Absolutely, I do. Um, And I think you know when we when when you unpick what Viognier, you know the flavors and the textures and and how it's made and all of those sort of things. It's it does in many ways um, behave more like a red uh, grape. Um, and or, or even a red wine although we don't ferment it on skins and so that makes sense then that you have a wine which you know has those sort of textural um, elements to it that red wine drinkers are more used to in red wines um, I've, I've had I, don't, I, I couldn't count the number of times I've done tastings or you know dinners and, and people have said oh no I, I won't try that I won't do the white I don't drink white um, and um, you know usually it's free at that point in time so I say no no you've got you to try it um, and if you give people a glass and you know Almost always, they go. Wow, I didn't expect to like that, but I really like that. And as as recently as last night, I did. I had a somebody that you know. No, I don't drink white wine, but oh, I really like that. It
2: it also sits very comfortably um, in small quantities, anyway, as a bedfellow with uh, red wine grapes, doesn't it? Especially, obviously, historically in the Rhone, but uh, um, in Australia too.
5: Yes, um, and so particularly with shiraz. Um, so in, in that sort of, uh, you know, in the great Australian way of, um, of, uh, of taking the best things from around the world and making them out there our own, um, we, um, we started making um, Shiraz Viognier wines um, in the late 90s, um, and many wine, many wineries did, um, in emulating the, the, the beautiful wines, of course, of Cobra Tea. And um, even though we started off at that sort of 15 or 20%, we realised that was quite, a, quite a, a, a lot, even at 2 and 3 and 5%. Um, the Viognier. It just seems to when you ferment the Viognier white grapes with the red grapes, it helps to lift up the sort of the perfumes and the aromatics of the of the the Shiraz in our case. It doesn't have the sort of the apricotness of Viognier. But it enhances the sort of the purple fruits, the blueberries and the violets and those characters that we see in um, some of our, um, particularly Shiraz from uh, the cooler regions like Eden Valley and, um, you know, Rat and Bully, which is where we do. And, of course, the very well-known Australian Shiraz Viognes from Clonakilla, which are from Canberra. Um, There's an interesting... a, a, a quite an interesting scientific sort of fact about, um, about what happens and it's called co-pigmentation. And the, the, the tannins or the phenolics, if you like, from the skins, so the things that, that you know, when you chew up a grape skin, it gets really bitter. In a white grape um, are, are not colored. In a red grape, of course, they're, they're red and that's where the color comes from. But when you ferment the white and the red together, they react together, those phenolic compounds and the tannins to form different, different tannins that are a little bit bigger and different structure. And they are redder than the Shiraz is on its own. That's a fairly moot point for us, to be honest, in the Barossa. We don't need more colour. We've got plenty of colour and very long-lived colour. But it is still an interesting scientific sort of, you know, thing that happens, that you would expect adding white to red would dilute it, and in fact, it does the opposite.
2: Louisa Rose of Yolumba waxing lyrical on the wonders of Thionier. It's to Chile next, narrow, thin, running more than 4,000 kilometres down the west side of the Andes. The terrain is varied and fascinating, sometimes very high, famously phylloxera-free. Yet for a long time, the country's been celebrated more for its dependable great value winemaking than for being necessarily very exciting that is changing fast or so says Alistair Cooper, master of wine, consultant, writer and a member of the senior judging committee at the International Wine and Spirit Competition, a South America expert at the recent uh, London trade tasting for wines of Chile. Uh, He was hosting masterclasses there. He said that things were evolving at a spectacular rate. So I asked him why change was needed in the first place.
1: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in your intro there, David. Really, with and I think Chile has been synonymous or been best known in the trade for being dependable, um, but perhaps slightly um, boring. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, just gonna say it, boring. And I think that's been a little bit unfair, actually, for many years. Um, but I think, whilst I believe things have been changing, bubbling under the surface in Chile itself, the message hasn't really got out to the wine professionals over the world, what's really happening there. And and the past sort of 10, 20 years, um, we've seen just a huge advance on so many levels um, throughout the whole of the Chilean wine industry. Um, and this is beginning to trickle through. And I'd say it's more than a trickle down. It's beginning to so a cascade might be a bit too much, but it's beginning to, to steadily flow through um, the, 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 the professionals over the world as actually what's happening in Chile. And, and it's great to see finally.
2: I agree with you. You really struck a chord with me because uh, although I've been buying Chilean wines for uh, mm. for years and I've been a fan of Chile uh, for years and it's a, a wonderful place to visit on holiday as well, I should say, um, yeah. I, I've never really known quite what it stands for in in Hmm. the way that I do feel I know that about other countries especially its neighbour Argentina Hmm. Um, so what is changing do you think that uh, is going
1: to uh, bring about well hopefully that cascade you mentioned well do you know what there's 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 quite a few answers to that question Um, but I I think one of the key ones actually has been the and this is this is sort of slightly ironic, actually, that Chile, uh, you, you mentioned it in, in the intro as well, has a very rich history. You know, that the vine came here in 1551 down to the southern heartland of Itata and Maule. And Pais was the great variety that came over. Muscat was the white grape that came over. And, um, and one of the key things that's happened in the past 15, possibly 20 years, but largely in the last 15 years, has been a revival of Chile's historic past. So this history, these what they call these heritage grape varieties of so País, Muscat, and then also Sanso and Carignan, other French varieties that we can we can look at as well. As well, coupled with that, we've seen globally a movement towards natural or lower intervention wines and the use of amphoras, etc. These are things that have been happening in Chile since the beginning. You know, making wines in what they call tinajas. Or amphora, as they're known elsewhere, has been going on for hundreds of years. Yet, recent—I think there was a there was a hangup from about the 1850s. We saw the Chilean wine industry began to become very French, for various reasons. Um, Phylloxera, a huge influx of of French winemakers to Chile, and an influx of these French noble varieties—Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Carmenere—these the, great varieties that we've always associated with Chile and these heritage varieties largely got marginalised and forgotten about, um, and actually more than marginalised, they they became maligned. They became a sort of hang up to Chile's colonial past. Um, yet what we find is these amazing patches of old vines, semi on as well. There's some, some some vineyards down in the south of Chile that are two to three hundred years old, which is really astonishing when you put that in a in a global um, perspective. And of course, the lack of phylloxera is a huge is a huge um, part of that but so I think actually one of the key things has been a, a look back into the past into these old varieties as well as these old regions further further down south and it sounds like what you're saying is in winemaking terms they've kind of learnt to do a bit hmm. less almost this that's that's been that's a very 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 good point and, and it's very astute of you to, to notice that yes there's been a step back I think again globally there's been a a step in that direction as well you know there's 20-25 years ago there was a the prominence of a certain wine critic that favoured heavily extracted oaky rich ripe styles certainly had left its imprint on on Chile as well as many other countries and I think globally there's been a a move towards you know maybe less is more so less less intervention in a winemaking capacity as I mentioned less oak less extraction less fruit and an, an emphasis on drinkability, but I think yes, certainly that is how things were done in the past um, in Chile. So it is exactly that. It's a it's an understanding of you don't need to to, to smother these things in makeup. They're they're beautiful as they are. Oh, natural. Was there anything wrong
2: per se with going for that dependability uh, I mentioned? Because I mean, you've got exquisite taste. You know, you're going to love. Uh, these heritage varieties, these yeah. um, beautiful low intervention wines. I happen to agree with you. I love these wines too. Um, but actually, yeah. in terms of, of the supermarket shelf and these wines that have performed so well for Chile, um, aren't mm-hmm. they in danger of, of kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater if they're not careful?
1: It's a really interesting point. And I, I think diversity is, is something that we should we should welcome, really. And I think that, that Chile can create these supermarket wines at, you know, let's let's say, sub £10. Your Cabernets, your, your perhaps less so Merlot, your Sauvignon Blancs, Chardonnays. Um, it, it is a wonderful thing. I think the, the, the mistake that was made in the past was to focus pretty much entirely on that and then try to build the rest of the category by going super premium you know and i think what the, the the mistake they made was was only focusing on that i think the fact that they can produce these wines is an amazing thing you know they have a wonderful climate and you know we're not all going to drink these these wines that stimulate us you know these low intervention slightly more premium wines you know the, the reality is wine is a business and we need to 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 satisfy that category but it's just not only becoming not becoming dependent on it. And that was the mistake I think Chile made. It was a mistake Australia made as well back in the past, but they quickly realised more quickly than Chile that they needed to redress the balance and, and, and build, uh, you know, and premiumise as well. And I think now, finally, we're beginning to see that with Chile. And I think there's no reason why why each sector can't can't sort of coexist peacefully.
2: Alistair Cooper, MW, on the changing face of Chile. Across the Andes, uh, things have been changing in Argentina as well, with a wonderful new breed of fresh, delicious altitude wines. Madeline Stenreth is another master of wine, an international consultant as well, uh, who knows the country uh, better than most, uh, not least because she chose altitude winemaking in Argentina, in Mendoza specifically, for her MW research paper. For which she won the Quinta Noval Award. And I managed to ask her what made Argentina so special.
6: Oh, it's a big question. But my first visit there was about 20, 22 years ago. And I was uh, actually blown away by, first of all, the effect of the Andes Mountains. And, you know, when you're standing in the vineyards and you're looking straight into the snow and you're you're realizing the effect of that ice box uh, and the effect it has on viticulture and also the effect on the wines but i think my my biggest eye-opening um, event was probably when i was a buyer for argentina for the swedish monopoly and i had passed my master of wine exams and i was going to choose the topic for for my dissertation and I was thinking why are these wines I had traveled from the Cafajate up in the north of Salta all the way down to Patagonia and I could not get my head around Malbec. I couldn't understand why this variety was so incredibly different wherever I went. But of course you have this north to south this long, it's like such a long distance but I couldn't understand Malbec and I thought that was Actually, quite thrilling to be able to um, to understand uh, the effect of the altitude and the effect of uh, of those Andes mountains. And then I think the other thing that really uh, made me passionate about Argentina was that the the people were so um, so incredibly surprised with having um, having someone from coming from Sweden <laughs> wanting to do research on their country and wanting to dig down so deep into something that they didn't none of none of the people there had done it before (laughs) so they you know open arms and really um, were so happy and so proud that i was giving them this attention that i was treated you know when you feel like they they really appreciate everything uh, that you're trying to do and they help you with everything they can in order to make this a success and I was just blown about, uh, blown away by the people I must say also. That was your... a long answer to your first question.
2: <laughs> That's okay, um, it's yeah. a good answer, it was a big question. Uh, yeah. You are I think one of two masters of wine from Sweden, is that right?
6: Well, the thing is, we're actually three of us now. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, but I'm I'm the only lady. But you know, right. when the masters of wine, when you're a man and you become a master of wine, no one says you're going to be the first master of wine. But I was the first, I was the first woman master of wine. So that's something. We're very few. Um, Norway's got a few more, and Finland's got a few more. But Sweden, yeah, we're three, and the other two have been busy uh, with a monopoly uh, for 15 years, and I've been the only one who's been, you know, active out in the world, uh, more on a freelancing basis. And I just love it. I couldn't mm. be stuck in one place like they have.
2: <laughs> I'm going to ask you how you got into wine, but before I do that, I just want uh, for those listening who who don't understand what we mean by monopoly, um just mm. explain um in 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 sort of very simple terms what um monopoly means uh, in terms of wine because it's rather different to the way the the wine market works in this country.
6: Yeah. No. there's if you're a consumer there's only one there's no like choice of where to go and buy your wines there's only one store so it's actually a retailing monopoly um the monopoly can buy from um, all the different importers but they can't buy straight from a producer so the monopoly has buyers that are in charge of being in contact with all the importers and then the producers um they send their wines um, to tenders so the tender system is all blind tasting and the wine wins on on points in blind tasting so you can't choose brands you can't you know it's like it's it's um, it's supposed to be very brand neutral and it's uh, it's a way to also i think for sweden to get away from the eu coming in to say hey you you can't you can't just have um you can't can't just choose to buy from this and that. Um, they, they, um, they really want to make sure it's a neutral system that no one pays their way in or, you know, put big marketing budgets behind the launch. And so you would not find wines in supermarkets. And there's only, there are like 520 stores across the country. And those are all belong to the same store chain. And this is owned by the, by the state. So it's state-controlled retailing monopoly, yeah, odder.
2: Yeah, very interesting, very different. uh, Tell us how you got into wine, because Sweden is not renowned for making wine, of course.
6: No, but I can tell you there are actually quite a few producers of wine down in the south of Sweden nowadays, which is quite extraordinary, and I always link it back to saying look at England 25 years ago a lot of people laughed at the wines and said "Ah, come on England but now (laughs) the wines from England are seen as very very high class all over the world and I think maybe one day Sweden could impress with a few wines and they're getting there slowly 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 but I got into wine because my parents were running restaurant and hotel and I was I was working there from when I was very young you know cleaning rooms and washing dishes and doing the hard work um, but then realizing that I thought it was quite interesting with that work in the restaurant and with guests and then one when I was a head waiter as like 18 year old um, and I was asked by a guest to recommend a wine who he asked me a question and it was a wine from Bulgaria Cabernet Sauvignon and I couldn't understand how to explain that to him because I didn't know anything about wine. And, you know, Sweden at that time had very, very little wine being sold all over the country. Um, people were drinking beers with their dinners. They had snaps and they were more like, you know, gin tonic and vodka Russian for aperitif. And it was not very whiny um, and I'm not that old. <laughs> but this was like, um, I started studying to become a sommelier in 1990 and it was... The selection of wines was very, very, very limited. Uh, But that was the route. I actually got embarrassed by this question that I couldn't answer. So I went and bought a book. (laughs) And then I started reading. I thought, this is very interesting. And then I, I went on a year around the world trip uh, with backpack with a good friend and i just wanted to stop at all the places they made wine and i just fell in love <laughs> oh. with the wine yeah and the places because the wine areas of the world are the most beautiful places in the world i think
2: uh, well i'm definitely going to <laughs> uh Discover some Swedish wine at some point soon because yeah. I have uh, never um, tasted Swedish wine. So that that's a but anyway that that's a diversion that's mm, for me to do. Definitely. Because let's yep. talk um, Argentina because you you mentioned why you chose. Uh, to uh, write your uh, dissertation for the MW programme for which you got that uh, Quinta Naval Award. Mm. Um, What did you conclude then in in sort of in simple terms or as simple as you can for for people who are not MWs themselves? What is the link Mm. between Altitude and uh, Delicious Malbec?
6: Well, the thing is, I had to limit myself to a smaller region. Uh, I couldn't do all of Argentina, but if you think of Argentina in the north, uh, you will find vineyards that are up at 3,000 meters above sea level. So it would have been very interesting to actually compare the absolute north with the vineyards down in the south in Patagonia, which would be reaching maybe 300 meters. But that would have been too much of a... You know, you need to have less variables. So I limited myself to Mendoza. And in Mendoza, you have vineyards reaching around 700 meters. And then the highest ones are around 1,500 meters. So, of course, that's going to make a huge difference uh, in climate and temperature. I would say the key to everything is um, the length of the growing season. Because if you have warm... If you're in the lower altitude, you will have hot days and you will have uh, not very cold nights, you will have warmish nights. And with that lower difference between day and nighttime temperature, you get less aromatics, you, less, you get less quality tannin and you'll get less color. And if you move toward a, uh, towards a higher altitude, you will naturally get cooler days and you will get cooler nights. So you will not have that incredible heat, but you will still have a big difference between a nighttime and daytime temperature. And incre- it's quite interesting that that difference between day and night uh, can sometimes reach up to 20 plus degrees in between day and night in the, in the normal ripening season. And that makes these aromatics just explode in the, in the grape. So you get high perfume, high aromatics, lots of intensity of fruit, but also because of that uh, lower temperature um, in the day and lower temperature at night, you will also have a, a longer ripening season. So the tannins, they have time to actually soften and polymerize on the vine. So you will get a lot of tannin, but they will be softer. So it's not like you say that you get a flabby wine, but you get tannins that are a lot of them but they all have a silky cover. And that has been the key, I think, to Malbec's success in the world is that they are highly charismatic, but they're also very soft because people, most people don't want to drink astringent wines because then you have to keep them for a long time to actually have them soften, you know? So uh, I, find, I think this is... The finding um, was that I couldn't focus only on quality, because quality, um, it was more based on style. Mm. So the higher we went in terms of altitude, we got uh, more floral notes, more violets, more freshness, uh, a lower pH, which then would naturally uh, respond, or how do you say, relate to uh, higher acidity. And you will get more tannin, but higher quality tannin. And more, more polymerized. So the higher, the better, it was not really the key for the for the dissertation. But uh, the higher in altitude, the more interesting in aromatics, the fresher, the less need for adding acidity to the to the wines. And you know that longer ripening season gave much more interest to the to the layers in the wine.
2: Madeline Stenreth, Master of Wine, on the wonders of altitude wine in Argentina. From South America to North America next and head upstate from the bright lights of New York City. And as you get towards the border with Canada, uh, the pace feels strikingly different. Rural and bucolic, a breath of uh, fresh air literally after the choked streets of Manhattan. This is the Finger Lakes, an exciting, emerging, cool climate region. Now, more than ever before, using Vitis vinifera grape varieties. Kelby Russell is the winemaker at Red Newt Cellars overlooking Seneca Lake. And on a recent visit,
3: he gave me an introduction. Yes, it's a region that uh, I think provokes confusion because you hear New York State and you think uh, wine in New York State. Do they grow them in the skyscrapers? This is uh, a, an easy thing to think. Uh, the truth is that our region is much closer to Canada. Uh, when I'm working abroad, especially, I like to tell people that we're an hour and a half from Niagara Falls. I think that helps put people in the right frame of mind, both of where we are. uh, And also it immediately makes people think of cold, which is probably an appropriate reaction because it's a cool climate up here.
2: Yeah, I was in uh, Manhattan at the weekend and uh, I wore a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. It was uh, a a really beautiful weekend. And I got off the plane at Syracuse and it's absolutely freezing. It's really very different, isn't it?
3: Yes. uh, Syracuse is very proud to be the snowiest city in the U.S. Uh, You know, we get somewhere in the neighborhood of three, three and a half meters of snow every year uh, in the, during the winter. So it's, uh, it's very different up here. It's, it's cold, it's continental climate. Uh, and in the name of the region, Finger Lakes, it kind of gives away why the region is successful for wine. It's the, the lakes and the moderating influence uh, that they provide for, for the vineyards around them. And this is a classic wine story. So many times we see regions where a combination of a body of water and slopes allow vineyards to do spectacular things.
2: And so it's uh, all about uh, moderation, both in winter and summer with the lakes then?
3: Absolutely, I mean, uh, uh, from an existential level, the lakes provide enough warmth during the winter on the slopes to keep the vines alive uh, and to keep the buds alive uh, in particular. Uh, that's also resulted in a selection of what vines work best for the region. But uh, at this point, we've kind of honed in on that. Uh, but then the lake stays cold in the spring, which is great because it delays bud break uh, and at least knock on wood, we don't have to worry about spring frost too often. Uh, You know, climate change maybe in 20 years, it's different. Uh, And then on the back end, it keeps things kind of cool. It keeps the air moving during the summer, which is good for reducing disease pressure. And then especially in the fall, it extends the ripening window because the lake will still be swimmable. uh, The lakes, I should say, will still be swimmable into late September uh, when the weather is actually getting quite frigid otherwise.
2: As I understand it, it, it's um, winter here for the vines is kind of a battle for survival, and summer um, is is really rather benign for a vine.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, I think people are surprised when they see some of the, the grapes that we work with in, in small quantities, uh, but you know, we have vineyards with Syrah planted in them, uh, and people think of the region as a cold climate, how could you possibly ripen? Uh, And the issue isn't so much the ripening, Uh, the issue is more vines that can handle the cold of the winter without, you know, sort of undue uh, needs in the vineyard uh, to to get them through.
2: So tell us about uh, Red Newt then.
3: Yes, Red Newt uh, is a a winery on the southeast side of Seneca Lake, um, which is the main lake in the region. Uh, It's a little sub-region that we uh, jokingly have called the Banana Belt, Uh, if you ever see that uh, or hear about that. That's this little slice of the Finger Lakes because it's the warmest subregion. Uh, and Red Newt, it was founded in 1998 by a husband and wife team, Dave and Deb Whiting, uh, with a real passion, both as a winery and as a bistro, which was rare at the time, to celebrate uh, local farmers and local uh, vineyards. Uh, single vineyard wines, which was the first time that had happened in the Finger Lakes, uh, and farm-to-table dining, which was also the first time it had happened in the Finger Lakes. And frankly, in 1999, was pretty rare anywhere in the world. That was, that seems passe now, but that was cutting edge at the time.
2: And we're going to talk about uh, Vinifera um, later in this episode of The Drinking Hour, but uh, uh, have you always at Red Newt been dealing with Vinifera grapes, so the European grape
3: varieties? Uh, Red Newt has always done a little bit of both uh, as, a, as a winery that was kind of, of a, a certain era. Uh, there was always a local demand uh, because people grew up drinking some of the local grapes. Uh, And Red Newt, especially in one year when uh, there was such a bad winter that a lot of the vines got, uh, didn't die, but the buds were fried, uh, decided to make uh, a wine supposedly just as a one-off. And as it turns out, if you make a local wine out of a local grape, but make it to international standards, it becomes far more successful than you could ever plan for, because people do appreciate when when care and time is put into something. Uh, So Red Newt uh, is overwhelmingly Bonifera-focused and Riesling-focused at that. Uh, but we still have a couple of these heritage grapes we like to tinker around with,
2: and uh, the those grapes. It will be fair to say the um, the 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 American uh, uh, sort of historic grapes uh, don't have in um, in kind of uh, international wine terms the greatest of reputations. Is that unfair? I think it's a little
3: unfair. Uh, I think uh, certainly I don't know that they necessarily have the the complexity inherent to them for maybe what top, top wines, uh, what we look for in those wines. But uh, I think it's unfair that they kind of get castigated when they make really beautiful wines uh, at a, a really approachable price point, And frankly, with much less input in the vineyard, uh, which is something we're all thinking about with climate change. Uh, and they and they made the region. Uh, the region started in uh, it's actually a very old region. It started in the 1800s, uh, mid 1800s with millions and millions of cases of champagne, as they called it, made out of these native grapes that they were exporting to champagne uh, and selling in Europe, in the European market, uh, very cleverly by changing the names of their post offices here uh, to things like Rem and Epernay, so they could label it bottled in Rem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing uh, kind of um, a piece of, of, of history. Um, having said that, um, sparkling wine here is is uh, with the kind of uh, the champagne varieties is really
3: growing, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, it's something that's always been, I think, explored here, I, or I should say, in the last fifty years, as the the region has come on, uh, and it's always been like a, a a secret. I want to say that every most of the wineries here do a little bit of it's uh, always astonishingly well done. It's a, the climate works perfectly for it, uh, and I think in the last five years, and really since the pandemic in particular, uh, the interest in those wines has skyrocketed.
2: It's. Um, I've just been in Manhattan as, as I was saying, and it's um, still striking that there aren't as many of the uh, New York wines um, in the market, in the restaurants, in the wine shops um, in uh, in New York as you might expect. Uh, why do you think that is?
3: I think it's one of those uh, those situations where. Uh, The the nearness of the region almost breeds contempt. Uh, There was a long time where the New York market was openly antagonistic to Finger Lakes wines. Uh, And uh, up until maybe 10 years ago, for the most part, uh, the New York City reaction to Finger Lakes wines was either, where are those? Uh, Or two, those are like the terrible wines from the country that know, like, why would we drink those when we have access to everything here? Uh, and that's that started to change thanks to some great tastemakers in the city that really uh, looked at New York wines with fresh eyes, thanks to winemakers and owners and, and people up here going down to the city and, and teaching people more about the wines. Uh, and frankly, there's just been, a, I th- in the US in particular, a stylistic shift. Uh, the sort of uh, wines that were really popular in the 90s and 2000s that the Finger Lakes could never make these sorts of bigger, heavier red wines. Uh, they're not out of fashion necessarily, but there's now an appreciation for uh, maybe more light and medium-bodied red wines in particular, and certainly for uh, you know a, a grape like Riesling, which is eternal. It certainly is. Uh,
2: whilst you've had some work to do um, down in New York, uh, it, at the same time internationally and and particularly in London, where I come from, there's been a a real awakening to the quality uh, that's coming out of. Uh, the finger lakes in particular and new york more generally um why do you think that is
3: i think uh there's a couple of things going on there first uh just to tie it back I'll, we'll give some credit to new york uh, to new york city that is which is uh i feel a bit like it's the the line from new york new york if i can make it there i can make it anywhere uh, and because the market was antagonistic to the finger lakes And we were competing against the best of the best from around the world, frankly, much like London in terms of that wine market Uh, for the wineries that have succeeded in New York Metro. It means that our prices were competitive and our quality to sort of price ratio, you know, however you want to put that together uh, was internationally sound already by the before we even left our own state. Uh, So I think that. Uh, kind of laid a good foundation for success uh, when we started to export that our prices weren't out of whack. And, and I know that our prices are, are more expensive, uh, but, that's, uh, but the quality there to meet that, uh, which has, has done well in London in particular. Uh, I think the other thing that uh, it might be surprising for people when they try our wines initially is that you think New York, and right, there's the joke you think of New York City, but also people think of American wine, they think of New World wine. Uh, and I think the truth is that the Finger Lakes is much more of an old world wine region. I mean, these terms are, are kind of useless to some extent, but I like to think of it uh, in the sense of uh, both cool climate, but also vintage variation. Uh, and I think there's a big difference between us and the West Coast in that on the West Coast, they have vintage variation for sure, but it's a pretty narrow range of variation. The standard deviation is pretty small. In the Finger Lakes, we're much more like a Burgundy, much more like a Bordeaux or obviously any spot in Germany where year to year can be totally different. And it kind of disabuses you of the notion of a perfect wine that like every year you can make the perfect wine. Uh, instead, it makes you uh, realize your job as a winemaker is to really uh, celebrate the vintage and to celebrate the the vineyard uh, in that year the best you can. It's a, it's a philosophical change. And I think it's why old world, uh, people who have, have grown up drinking old world wines, and certainly old world wine makers when they visit the Finger Lakes, uh, immediately respond to what we're doing.
2: Kelby Russell at Red Newt Cellars, part of our Finger Lakes special edition a few weeks ago. Finally, for this highlights edition, it was a great pleasure to catch up with the lovely Susie Atkins, drinks editor of Delicious magazine for more than 16 years and a wine writer for around the same time for the Telegraph titles as well. She's also a prolific author with credits including Wine Wisdom, How to Choose Wine, Wine Made Easy and The Best Selling Girl's Guide to Wine. I asked her how she got that wine bug in the first place.
0: I think relatively late compared to some people. I wasn't brought up in a family where, you know, there was a lot of serious wine drinking at all. My parents drank a bottle of Rioja perhaps with Sunday lunch and had the classic bottles of, you know, German hock and things floating around, but they weren't terribly into wine at all. And when I got to university, I started becoming a little interested. I didn't join the kind of wine society at at Cambridge, because I just, I know that just seemed a bit stuffy sounding to me. But the revelation was probably shortly after university, um, a great friend of mine passed me, I mean, really memorable moment, I'm sure a lot of us in wine have this, but a great friend of mine passed me a glass of Australian Chardonnay. And don't forget, this is late 80s. So you know, this, this was something that felt very new. And I really remember that first sip and that amazing bright fruit probably had quite a lot of oak in it. I probably wouldn't like it that much today. But that was a moment. That was a light bulb moment for me. I thought, God, this is really amazing. And from that sort of exploded, all these thoughts about different grape varieties and the flavors they produce. And of course, we had the New World whizzing interview at that point, and it all just seemed very exciting. So at that point, I was bit. But I would say I was in my early 20s, really.
2: Wow. OK, it's, it's amazing, the impact. Um that Australian Chardonnay revolution had I was talking yes. to uh, Katie McCauley, the the um, very oh, yes. um, experienced uh, there we go there's that word again uh, brand manager um, at Robert yes, Oak and and she was talking about uh, hand selling with Matthew Dukes back in the day in the in the late 1980s um, hand selling those those wines and for anyone um, who has come into wine um, you know, in this side of the year 2000, it must all seem a bit bizarre that everyone got so excited about... I oak, know, the Australian and you, have, and you have to remember,
0: I mean, you know, I, it is hard to, to to imagine this if you're much younger, but but back then we had been drinking these very bland... Unless, unless you were seriously into expensive wine, you generally were just drinking very bland German whites. Uh, Yugoslavian Lasky Riesling was quite the student white... Um, and Bulgarian wines, which some of which were were quite good, but you know, it it just, when these countries like Australia, in particular Australia, I have to say, but, you know, shortly followed by Chile, for example, exploded onto the scene with these incredibly clean, fruity, fresh, you know, bursting with ripe flavours wines appear. It was very exciting indeed. And it really, that really is what switched me onto it.
2: You were responsible for the uh, Witch uh, magazine uh, Wine Guide for a while, which um, in in the time before... Uh, the internet took over. Um, you know, we, we'd we'd go off if we wanted to buy something. We we would uh, look at which magazine to, uh, to to look at a critical assessment that you would now find um, online. Of course, including yeah. uh, which because it's it's still there. But
0: um, we do use which online now. I I feel we should say I don't work for them anymore, but it is oh, oh, still oh, well, very they much there. They do in print or online.
2: It, it has adapted its model. But how did you go from? From discovering wine, as you said, relatively late um, in your 20s to uh, being a a critic of it uh, for a, a publication as august as which.
0: Well, there was there was a, an intermediary step. So I, I was living in London, and uh, ended up doing a postgraduate journalism course that came with a job at Haymarket Publishing, which was Mike is Michael Hesseltine's company. And they took on 10 or 12 graduate trainees every year. So I went I wanted to write for magazines didn't have on a subject I thought I'd just generally write for I think I probably thought women's magazines that sort of thing features was the aim and I went to work for them as a graduate trainee and ended up on campaign which is the advertising magazine I think it's still going strong which was quite glamorous at the time so advertising was considered very very trendy business but I just didn't like the subject matter at all I liked I liked working on the mag but not the subject matter and it turned out that within the stable at Haymarket was wine magazine it was literally just called wine And I was by then starting to get very interested in wine and food. And I was doing a few freelance pieces for time out on restaurants and bars. Um, And so when I saw a vacancy at this wine magazine, you know, that was in the same building as where I was working, I went for it and, and very hard. And Margaret Rand was the editor and she interviewed me and I got the job. So I became assistant editor at Wine Magazine and it kind of took off from there. And I worked there for several years. I went freelance. I spent the 1994 vintage in Australia as a seller hand, a rubbish one, I have to say. Uh, And when I got back, um, I got the job with Witch, working on Witch Wine Monthly, and then uh, on the Witch Wine Guide, which, which really was a huge learning curve, actually, even though I had some foundation of knowledge by then, I'd done my WSET courses, working on the Witch Wine Guide was a challenge. That was a an august tome of a wine guide that had been I think previously edited by Harry Ayers, and I went to work on it as the co-editor with Simon Woods who's still a great friend and uh, and did several editions of it and it really did build my knowledge enormously while I worked on that.
2: I bet you did and you've thrown around some of the the great names there um, all, <laughs> um, still absolutely active um, in the business I should say. Harry Ayres, uh, Simon Woods, uh, Margaret Rand, who wrote the um, the Withers Clark, wrote the first uh, book that I ever read about wine. So I was uh, I was hugely excited when I first met uh, uh, Margaret on a uh, a press trip. Yes, she uh, can be la-
0: quite daunting, but I, she's brilliant, and uh, <laughs> she and I will always be grateful to her for for giving me that first job in 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 wine writing.
2: I can imagine she was amazing to to work for because she has the most incredible palette. But as you say, she she can be quite daunting, but she's uh, lovely, really. Um, Anyway, so uh, let's let's scroll forward slightly. And you then uh, you go to Delicious magazine, which um, you're still there. You're the drinks editor. Uh, You've been there, uh, we think, sort of 16 plus years. Um, It sounds um, just like a, a really rather lovely job.
0: I love Delicious magazine. I really love that magazine. And I have to say that the people I've worked with on Delicious, I think three editors have been through, maybe four, They've always been splendid. It's a a super mag. It really struggled when COVID hit, as all magazines did, not just with advertising, but with, um, obviously, you know, the shops were shut for people to get their print editions. But it made it through, which is great, because it's all about home cooking, so you would think it would be popular. Uh, So after a terrifying two or three months, the magazine made it through and is still going strong. I absolutely love my work for them. They've actually got a beer columnist as well now, because I don't really write about beer, and used to bleat plaintively that I didn't really want to write about it so there is now a beer column alongside my wine and spirit pages so it's got a good good drinks coverage that mag
2: and of course this is a first and foremost a food magazine and therefore uh, the relationship between food and drink must be it's kind of stating the obvious really but but absolutely um critical for you because not everyone who writes about wine who critically assesses wine really thinks about food i don't think
0: No, I think that's absolutely true, and I always do. And my 12 years, I don't think this will be mentioned yet, my 12 years as one of the wine experts on BBC One Saturday Kitchen meant that I was pairing wines to food, you know, every time I did the show, several dishes. So I've always felt very strongly about that. Um, you know, in, in the European style, I don't really think we should drink wine without something to eat, even if it's just a little snack. So food and wine matching is really important to what I do. Yeah, no, I write about it a lot with delicious. I'm always looking at the recipes, obviously, in that month's issue and, and trying to come up with drinks, not only that I'm recommending uh, because they're good and good value, but because they specifically go with the recipes in the mag, you know, it needs to be super useful. It's It's like all wine communication. It needs to be Useful and it needs to be entertaining, and I do sometimes think both those things can get forgotten.
2: Yes, I was going to say, and in fact, I I mentioned this in the introduction. You, you have um, a very down-to-earth, relatable style. Um, Again, um, that might be might sound like that's not especially important or significant, but I think it's it is lacking um, in in a few people who do the kind of uh, job you do because wine. Uh, drinks generally can really intimidate
0: people, can't they? I think they still can. I mean, I think it's better. I think we're more confident than we used to be. Consumers are more confident than than certainly they were. Uh, I think people feel happier asking questions than they used to. It's far less elite. I know it's an obvious thing to say, but it really, you know, it really, really is. But people are still quite daunted by it. And unless you can talk to them in a language they understand uh, and... And as i say give proper practical useful recommendations you know how to serve things how to store things how to match them with food and also be a bit fun and tell a story while you're doing it then then i'm not doing my job properly
2: susie atkins wine writer and author concluding this highlights edition from the fifth series of the drinking hour we've now been going for more than a year and i'm delighted to say we're back next week with a new series uh, the sixth series uh, the first of which Marks uh, the start of summer, for us at least, anyway, uh, with an hour dedicated to rose, one of my favourite things, with Dersu Viana Jr., Master of Wine. Uh, he's going to talk about uh, rebooting the IWSC judging of rose wine. So do join us for that. Uh, thanks to you for listening to our highlights. And for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International
5: Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.